Well, today we are going to be continuing in this sermon series we've been in for a little bit, and we're entering into a bit of a new section because we're going to be jumping into John chapter 17 today. So if you have your Bibles with you or on your phones, maybe take a moment to to find yourself in that location, John chapter 17. This is a section of passage that this passage is referred to sometimes traditionally as, as the high priestly prayers of Jesus. Now, this is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we'll find in Scripture. And in this prayer, it really reveals the burdens that were upon his heart as he's preparing to go to the cross. And while the disciples are standing right there with him, he he was just speaking to them and teaching them and comforting them and encouraging them, he, he now is no longer addressing them. He's, in one sense, he's turned his attention, and what they're doing is kind of eavesdropping upon this time of intimate communication as Jesus now turns his attention and his focus to the Heavenly Father. Now, eavesdropping is probably something that we've all done from time to time, whether accidentally or if we're honest on purpose. At times, we're all guilty of that. Whether it's been perhaps in your school and and you hear some voices around the hall and you're like, I wonder what they're talking about, what teacher, what person they're talking about, or or at work even, when, when somebody doesn't know you're in your office, or they don't realize how thin the walls are in your office, and that you can hear what's going on, and you try and figure out the conversation from hearing every two or three words. If you've been on a bus or a plane, quite often there's people having conversations that are, are way louder than they need to be, and you can kind of wonder, are they wanting me to hear what they're talking about? Maybe they're even trying to brag in a, in a weird kind of way. And then we've all probably seen those guys that have the, like the Bluetooth earpieces, right, for their phones, and, and at first you think they're just, they're talking to themselves, you're not quite sure what's happening, if you should take a wide path around that person as you see them, but then you realize, oh, no, they're on the phone, and uh, as you listen to them, you're trying to figure out what does the other end of that conversation sound like as, as we eavesdrop. Now, I know we're not supposed to do that, it, it is considered socially impolite to eavesdrop, but we know how hard it is when you hear part of a conversation, or, or especially if there's a key word, especially if it's your name that you hear, how hard it is not to, uh, not to try and listen in. Because we're curious about how does the joke end? How does the story end? What is that person's true feelings and true thoughts about something, or in particular, about me? And now in this case, we're, disciples are eavesdropping on Jesus. You know, and he is talking about them. And he's talking about us, too, as he talks to his Heavenly Father. And and in this case, even though it's socially unacceptable to eavesdrop, in this case, I want to suggest to you that's okay. In fact, he wants us to. You know, in this case of these prayers, he knows his disciples are listening. He intentionally prayed in front of them. Like a pastor who ends a sermon with a word of prayer, he has shared words with these people about God, and now he is sharing words to God in their presence. And we're going to look at this passage over the next three weeks. Next week, when we come back into this passage, we're going to see a section where Jesus prays for his disciples, where he, where he mentions the disciples. That this is a prayer that's kind of about them. It's not to them, but it's about them, about their protection, about his desire for them to have unity. And in particular, he's going to talk about their holiness. We're going to focus on holiness next week. And then we're going to conclude the series. We're going to conclude this chapter with a... a a message on Jesus praying for all believers, which is essentially Jesus praying for the disciples' disciples as, as he prays for them, and then he prays for all of those who will come to know Jesus Christ through their ongoing ministry. And, and that ministry actually continues right up to this very day. And, and Jesus in that part is actually praying for us as well, 
that we would continue that mission. And it focuses around the great commission that we would continue on that work. And he's praying for us in that last, in that last passage. But today as we begin, we're going to be looking at a passage that if you have like an NIV Bible or a Bible that has headings in it, it's going to probably say something like Jesus prays for himself or, or Jesus prays to be glorified. And in some ways, this will not be your typical message on prayer. Because quite often when we hear messages on prayer, it falls into the category of, of this is why prayer is important or, or this is how to pray or this is what prayer looks like. And, and, and those are fine, but unlike those types of prayers, those types of passages we find in the, New, in the New Testament, this particular one is not a model to be followed. This passage is not a model for us to follow. Instead, what we have here is the opportunity to witness the depth of relationship and the depth of connectedness, the depth of dependence that Jesus has with his heavenly Father. And as we look at that, it provides us opportunity not to see a model, but it provides us opportunity to see what does a heart of prayer look like. So that's what we're focusing on today, is what does a heart of prayer look like? Because as Jesus enters into this time of deep prayer, we catch a glimpse of his heart, of his heart for his heavenly Father, of his heart for his followers, but then also his heart for you and his heart for me as we have that opportunity to continue the work that he had begun. And so as we begin to walk through this chapter today and consider this heart of prayer, I invite you to do so, first of all, by keeping in mind two questions. Two questions I ask you to ponder as we go through this today. The first question is, where does prayer fit into your life? Maybe, maybe that question even assumes too much that maybe prayer doesn't fit into your life at all. Where you are in your faith journey, it doesn't really fit at all. Or maybe you would look back and if you're honest, you'd say, you know what, I really only pray in those times of desperation and in those, those times of need. Beyond that, I'm, I'm kind of good, God. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum where you would, you would say, you know what, I, I think I, I'm close or striving to do what they call like living a life of prayer. But where, where does that fit for you? And the second question is when you pray, does your heart wrestle with God, or does your heart find peace and find rest in Him? What's your experience in prayer? There's a connected nature between these two questions. Now, these questions may make some people feel uncomfortable. And I understand that may happen, and I'm not going to ask you to, to share or respond kind of your answers to these questions. That's not the point. The, the answer to these questions is for you. It is for you to contemplate in, inside yourself as you ponder the heart of prayer in your life. And to see there might be an opportunity for you to grow in your relationship with the Lord. So to begin here today, we're going to walk through this theologically dense passage. It's only a few verses, but it's theologically dense. There's so much in here. We're going to, we're going to walk through that quickly. And then we're going to circle back and see what Jesus' example and Jesus' words in this passage can reveal to us about our heart towards prayer. Okay? Now, after Jesus had finished teaching his disciples all of these things, We've been talking about for the last seven weeks that we find in John chapter 14 and 15 and 16. He gets to the end of that and he turns his focus, not not just his words and his attention, he actually shifts his entire physical posture even, the scriptures tell us, as he lifts his eyes to heaven. And in the presence of the disciples, he says this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those whom you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and that they know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Now, as I mentioned, traditionally, this is a passage that can be referred to as Jesus prays for himself or, or Jesus prays to be glorified. And, and that's, that's in the passage. That's in there. But there's so much more going on here. And really what's happening in, in the, the premise of this whole passage can be reduced down to a single petition. The single petition of glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. You see, Jesus was aware of the mission for which he had come. Jesus was aware of the plan and the purpose that was behind that mission. And he knew that successfully completing that mission would bring glory to the Father and eternal life for all who would become believers. He knew that was the mission. And so while he is essentially praying for himself, he he says, glorify your son. He is saying that from a perspective of understanding a greater purpose. Of understanding that there is an end game beyond himself that he's looking towards. And that's been his goal throughout the entire gospel. And that's why he begins by saying that he now realizes that this is the hour. You see, if you were to read through the whole book of John, you would find him using this term hour in different ways. Near the beginning, he initially said, the hour has not yet come. When he was asked to do a miracle at the wedding in Canaan, when he was doing some early teaching that upset the Pharisees and they wanted to arrest him and stone him, the scripture says his hour had not yet come. But then as you follow through the book a little further, it changes where Jesus continues teaching, continues encountering people, and he starts to say, the hour is coming. We see this when he meets with the Samaritan woman at the well. Again, when he's teaching his followers a little further into his ministry, the idea of the hour is coming. But then, following the triumphant entry into Jerusalem just a few days earlier, in that final week that he would walk on this earth, he started declaring, the hour has come. And from this we can see a continual progression through the book of John that he is approaching and gradually moving towards the crucifixion, which is now just hours away. A crucifixion which he knows will bring glory to the Son, but also glory to the Father. Now this seems like an odd thing in some regards, For him to pray for glory knowing that it points to the cross. Because how in the world is the cross a glorious thing? How can the cross be such a great glorious thing? When we hear the word glory, people in in our our secular world will refer to something or someone that, that deserves praise. And it deserves honor. Somebody who has fame. Something we can have a great source of pride in. And certainly nobody in the time of Jesus or nobody in this day ever looked at the cross and said, that sounds glorious. Nobody in that time ever said, you know what I have on my bucket list? A cross before I die. No one ever walked by a crucifixion scene and said, those cross guys got it made. It just didn't happen because the message was completely the opposite. The reason they crucified people in that manner, the reason that people thought the the crucifixion upon a cross was such a brutal way of dying was because it was reserved for the people who are the most despised. It was reserved for the lowest of the low. It was a place of shame and it was a place of death. And yet Jesus embraces the cross as a place of glory. He embraces it a place of glory, even hastening its coming, not as a place of shame. Because remember what he's praying. His eyes are not focused upon himself. His eyes are focused upon the Father's glory and the salvation that his act will afford for you and for me. And in that context, the cross is a visible representation of God's power and of his redeeming love. 
and what the world sees and what the world interpreted as a place of death and defeat was in reality a place and an act of saving action on our behalf. Because by dying upon the cross and then being raised again on the third day, Jesus received glory as the faithful, victorious Lamb of God. You see, the glory he's seeking here is not about some accolade or some trophy that we may look at with some fame or some pride in. The cross is not an accolade or a trophy. The cross is what makes possible eternal life for you and for me. And that's what he defines in this passage, that, that the cross, that eternal life is, is an efficacious <clears throat> process by which we have the opportunity to enter into a relationship by which we know the one true God and by which we can also know Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. As I talked about last week and a bit previous to that, this idea of knowing, this idea of believing, it's more than just a cognitive awareness. It's it's knowing, it's believing to the point that you enter into a trusting relationship with, that you're willing to put your faith in, that you're willing to say, this is the one true God. I believe that God has no equals. I believe and I trust that God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and of earth. And in saying that, we are rejecting all idolatry. We're rejecting anything in which we could put our trust in apart from him. Whether that be ourself or whether it be the things of this world, we are rejecting that by saying, my trust, my knowledge is in the one true God. And it is also in seeing Jesus as his son. His son who was sent to reveal grace and truth of the Father. His Son who is not just a path to eternal life, but His Son who is the path. His Son who is the one beloved who is said is the way, is the truth, and is the life, and who Himself said, no one comes to the Father except through Me. Eternal life through knowing God the Father and knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, and placing our trust in those truths about Him. Now, all who are willing to declare that, all who are willing to place their belief, that believe in their hearts that Jesus died for them to pay the price for their sins, all who are willing to proclaim that he was raised again victorious on the third day, Lord of all, receive this eternal life and will live eternally with the Father. And this is the ultimate purpose for which Jesus was sent and for which he is now praying. And having anticipated the successful completion of that mission, In the final verse of this passage, Jesus begins to anticipate his return to the Father when he shares these words. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory he's seeking on the cross is different than this one. The glory he's seeking on the cross was anticipating completion of that so that he could return to the former glory that he had. And the glory Jesus previously had before he came to earth in the form of a babe. The glory he had that was preexistent when he was with the Father. The glory he had with the Father before the foundations of the earth were established. And this glory, this this preexistent glory he's referring to here that he's seeking to return to, is actually what John refers to back in the very first chapter of the entire gospel. You see, this gospel was written not 
as things unfolded. But many, many years later on, John sat down to write these words and to, to write this from a perspective of having that veil lifted so that he could see clearly how all the events and all the teachings and, and understand them clearly with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to see how it all fit together in light of what truly happened in the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he refers back to this pre-existent glory in the first chapter of the book of John when he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word referring to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He then continues on by saying, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but if we have seen the Son, who is God himself, then we have seen the Father who has made himself known. You see, this passage shows us a sense of a shared glory in this pre-existent state. And a shared glory of this type can only exist within monotheism if we adopt and accept a Trinitarian perspective, which is what John is trying to explain here. The shared glory can only exist within a Trinitarian perspective. Throughout John's gospel, if you read it cover to cover and have eyes to look for it, you will see that taken as a whole, there is a clear presentation of the Trinity in the gospel of John, where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit Three distinct persons that have operations within the world, within history, within our lives, exist together in perfect community, in perfect oneness, and in perfect shared glory. Now these are very important reminders for us of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ, through his glory and the glory that it brought to the Father. But I'm sure some of you are wondering, what does this all have to do with our heart of prayer? What does it all have to do with the heart of prayer as we approach God? Well, let's circle back now. Let's circle back and revisit this by looking at our, our two questions and see what that shows us. Remember the first question I asked you? Where does prayer fit into your life? Or, or does it fit into your life at all? Do you pray only in times of desperation? Do you pray at a scheduled 9 a.m. time? Do you pray constantly throughout the day? Where, where does prayer fit into your life? Well, throughout this passage, we just quickly walk through and we finish unpacking. There's something I need to draw to your attention that is somewhat behind the story, if you will. You see, Jesus is here at a time of need. We know he's about to go to the cross. And as we know from the other prayers that he would utter that evening, that he was deeply distressed and he was in a point of deep trouble. And he was seeking comfort and support, not only from his disciples, but also as he cried out to the Father from a heart that was overwhelmed, he's crying out to the Father. And so from that we can see, first and foremost, most explicitly, that it is appropriate. It is God-honoring, in one sense, for us to honestly and authentically cry out to God in these moments. That when we have problems and difficulties, when we are in a time of need and sorrow, it is appropriate to cry out to God in these times. There's an important note here as well. This wasn't the first time Jesus had prayed to the Father. And this certainly wasn't the only type of prayer that he ever prayed to the Father. In fact, Jesus demonstrated prayer as a regular part of his daily life. It could be said he exemplified what it means to live that life of prayer. If we turn back in our Bibles a little bit, back just one book to the chapter to the Gospel of Luke, 
Luke shows Jesus at prayer more than anybody else in the Gospels and in a more variety of situations as well. Very quickly, we find these sorts of things in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus prays at his baptism. When we look at Luke's account that while Jesus was praying, the voice of heaven came, the the dove descended upon him. Jesus prays in a quiet place as the crowds grew and as the tension started to build and, and all the demands upon Jesus happened. On a regular basis, he would remove himself. He would, he would go for a time of refreshment by praying to the Father. Jesus prayed all night before he picked the 12 disciples. He held the first all-night prayer vigil that, that existed in, in Scripture in the New Testament that we can see as he earnestly seeks the will of the Father in this situation. Jesus prayed before Peter's confession. When Peter comes, there's an interruption of a conversation or a time of prayer that happens there. Jesus prays that transfiguration. When you read that, the language used there is that he's transfigured while he is praying. Jesus prays an intercessory prayer, a priestly prayer, if you will, that when Peter and the other disciples would fail, that they would be restored and come back equipped, ready to continue the mission. Jesus would pray later that night at the Mount of Olives, where he's very troubled, and he reaches out to God and reaches out to others. And then Jesus prays a few times from the cross. And some of the most well-known prayers, seeking God as a source of power in that time. And this is, just a, this is just a sampling of times that Jesus was at prayer. But what we can see from this is that the example he sets for us is that Jesus lived a regular, habitual communion with God. Is the example he set for us. And if this is the example he set, and how much more so should we pay attention to that for our own lives? if we're to walk in his footsteps. You see, when Jesus was in this time of need, at this time of coming to the end of his mission, was approaching, he, he had a deep relationship. He had that deep connection, that deep purpose that already existed. And that's his desire for each of us. That's the example he sets for each of us, is to bring to him in all seasons, in all situations, where they be Troubles, burdens, fears, points of celebration, even just the mundane stuff of life, being in that continual relationship and life of prayer with the Father. You know, Paul talks about this in Philippians when he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, in everything, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, Prayer and petition and thanksgiving, two ends of the spectrum, that whether we're in a point of need, we can have thanksgiving, a point of celebration, we can have thanksgiving. And all those things bring your request to God. And by doing that, it can lead us into that deep relationship. It can lead us into that deep connection with God. Which becomes more natural then when we have a time of difficulty. When we have a time of grief and a struggle, we can come to God with more confidence because we're already in regular communication with Him. Otherwise, when we need them most, and I've encountered this when I've, I've counseled many people over the years, when we need them most, there, there's a hesitancy to come to God. There's a hesitancy to bring him to, to bring these things to him. Sometimes you see this comedically played out on TV and in TV shows. You've probably seen a movie or a TV show where a character finds himself in a moment of decision or a moment of crisis, and they decide, well, I guess I could try praying. And and it's such a foreign concept to them. They're not sure how to start. They're not sure what to do. So they, they often begin with like, hey, God, it's Mark. Or Mark from Edmonton, you know. How you doing? Yep, yep. Uh, thanks for the sun. It's, it's warm. I like that. Yep. 
they just, it's such a foreign concept. It's such a foreign concept. It's because there's that ongoing regular understanding in that relationship through prayer. You find this similarly with, it's, it's like if you have a friend or a relative who, who only calls when they need something. It always starts with, hey, how's it going? And you're thinking, what's well, coming? You only call, you only text, and you only start that way when there's something coming. Can I borrow 100 bucks? Can you come pick me up? Can you come bail me out? Like, when those things happen, we still love them. And I don't want to misconstrue that point. We still love them. And I hope we would consider at least the appropriateness of helping people out in that situation, just as I think that's how God even looks at our prayers at times. But we can't ignore the fact that the dynamic of the relationship is awkward. There's this awkwardness to the relationship that exists at that point. And if, if praying to God feels awkward, that could be a sign that there needs to be an increased frequency, an increase in the type of prayers, the types of things that we're sharing with God. Because if we know God, and if we know Jesus whom he sent, then we have eternal life, but that also means that we are children of God. And therefore, we do not need to look at ourselves as a third cousin twice removed, who nobody knows and nobody understands. Because if we are children of God then we are known by him. He loves us. He desires to have us include him in all seasons of our lives, which we can do through this habitual, regular life of prayer. And as we do that, we start to find that it's actually more about us moving towards God more than about him moving towards us. Because he's already there. He's ready, eagerly anticipating the ability to step in and share with you to help you to discern the situations, to have eyes to see the power of prayer, to grow in your love, to grow in your relationship, to grow in your dependence upon him. He stands ready to offer that. And so this is really more about us moving more towards him in this position of prayer. Let's have a look at the second question. When you pray, does your heart wrestle with God or does your heart find rest in him? You know, as I've shared with many of you over the past, a bit of my own story there's a season in my life where there was a definite wrestling with God and a wrestling with his plan for me. I much, much earlier in my life had discerned God's will for me, which came through just looking at some inner passions and abilities and, and some events that had happened in my life. It came through the acknowledgement and the encouragement of others. It came through um, fruit that I could look at in my life and say, you know, there's something to all of these things put together that, that God is directing me in a certain path. But I chose to go a different path. Now, I wasn't doing anything bad. I wasn't out robbing banks or assaulting people. And from outward appearances, from worldly appearances, I actually appeared to be living a blessed life. I actually, I had one employee who came to me one day and said, I want your life. When he looked at my job, at my paycheck, at my family, at my house, at all those things that by worldly measures we examine blessedness, He felt I was blessed, and he told me he wanted my life. And inside, I was just torn up. I was torn up inside because of this sense of emptiness and this discontentment that existed in my heart. And so when I felt that I would go pray, I would pray about it. But then it only got worse. Because when I would go to pray about it, I knew the source of my struggle was my stubborn self-determination. And when I would go to pray to God, Lord, what is your will for me? It would be nothing more than a reminder of my self-determination. 
And so I definitely had no rest and no peace in prayer. I had nothing but this wrestling within me. I knew God wanted something different for me. But I was going to seek my glory and my glory my way. And as God tends to do when we make those decisions, he allows us to wander. And he also allows us to reap the consequences of that wandering. It was not until I reached a point of surrender that I experienced peace and rest in God and in prayer. It wasn't until I gave up and yielded the path to God's life, God's will for my life that I found that. Now, it didn't have to last that long. It didn't have to be that hard. But it was because I chose to remain in that discontentment. There's no secret to how I changed the path. It, I'm not going to tell you it was easy, but it wasn't overly complicated. It really started with prayer. It started with me praying, God, what is the first step that I can take that brings you glory, not me? People have said something similar in different ways at times. When they say, you know, I, I, you know if, if God opens the door, I walk through it. Or if God closes the door, I don't try and kick it down. It's kind of a different way of saying the same thing. You know, if God opens the door, I take that step of faith and I walk through it, trusting that he has what's best for me in mind and that walking according to his will is what's best for me, but also trusting that if I'm walking according to his will, I'm bringing him glory, not myself. And then we see this in Jesus' prayer in a matter of speaking as his posture changes to the submission to God and to God's will for his life. He knows what he's been sent to do, and he's seeking to walk that path to the very end. He repeatedly and explicitly says that the primary reason, his primary desire was to glorify the Heavenly Father. Even when he was asking things for himself, his attention, his end game goes beyond himself to the Heavenly Father and salvation for all of us. And he knew that by fulfilling that purpose for which he was sent, he knew that by dying upon the cross for our sins, that that would bring glory to the Father, even at a cost to himself. But he was willing to do it. Now, one of the tenets of the Christian faith is this belief that everybody is created in the image of God. And not only are we all created in the image of God, that everybody, therefore, has value. Everybody is loved by God. And everybody has a God-given purpose to play out on this world, in this life. And when we seek to discover it and then seek to live it out to the best of our ability and the power of the Holy Spirit, we bring glory to God by doing so. In the book of Ephesians, we read that we are God's handiwork. And as his handiwork, we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this verse and this principle does not mean that all of us are going to be called to be missionaries and pastors. There are some of us who were placed on this, on this earth and given a purpose of being a plumber. Some of us were, were given the purpose of being accountants or teachers or bus drivers. Regardless of what that is, own it. Whatever that purpose is, if it is a God-given purpose, own it. And come to understand that you are not working you know, for the man or for the paycheck, as they say, because in that place you are working for the man who has placed you there with a purpose who has placed you there as an ambassador of his grace and his truth. Regardless of where you are, you are and can live out the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. There's one lady I came across who put it this way. She said, I am a missionary secretly disguised as a baker. And that was her view. 
Every employee she worked with, every customer who walked through that door was an opportunity to be an ambassador of truth and grace. And she was secretly disguised as a baker. Is that a perspective we can adopt in that? That wherever God has called us to, we are his ambassadors. Jesus as a son was glorified through his faithful journey to the cross that achieves the means of our eternal life, thereby also bringing glory to the Father. And so when he submitted to the will of God, when he fulfilled that will in his life, he brought glory to the Father. And if we can do the same, we can find freedom from that wrestling in our hearts, if you're experiencing that, and instead find rest in the Lord. Because in those moments, we are in accord with God and bringing glory to the Lord. You know, when Jesus reached the end of his time on earth, having fulfilled or having faithfully followed the will of the Father, he found himself in that place of deep relationship and, and deep connection and dependence with God above. And in those final hours, he found comfort and guidance in the voice that he had come to know so well, that he had been talking to and in community with for, for the years that he walked the earth. This can be realized in our lives as well. If in every season of life, we will strive to live that life of prayer. Now, when we're willing to do that, and we're willing to regularly seek God's voice in leading, it's realized through adopting that posture of submitting our lives to his will. Now, we don't like that word, submit, because it means that we're not in control anymore. It means that we can't go our own way. But in part, that's what Jesus was talking about when he told his, his followers that if you want to follow me, you must deny yourselves. If you want to follow me, you must die to self. If you want to follow me, you need to pick up that cross and walk in my footsteps. I'm not going to tell you it's easy. That's a hard daily grind that is placed before each of us. It requires steps of faith. But I can tell you this, that if you're willing to give it a try, if you're willing to do it, that each step gets a little easier. Not because you get worn down. Not because it breaks your will and you just get worn out. But because if you're willing to faithfully follow and just take God at his word, you start to realize the reality of God's goodness. And you start to realize the reality of his power in your life and through prayer. So as you ponder that, I invite you to join me now in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we begin by first thanking you for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to reveal grace and truth to us, who you sent to be an example to us in, in so many ways. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, for the love that he demonstrated. And also for the example he set for us, Lord, and in particular as we're focusing today, that, that, that example of what it looks like to live in dependence, to live in connectedness and relationship with you, which, which, God, we can express so powerfully through prayer. We know, Lord, you're already aware of, of each of our thoughts and our actions, each event. God, help us to have the, the eyes and the will to share those with you, to acknowledge you're already there and aware just long for us to enter into connection with you in those things. God, may we live out that life of prayer and through doing so discern what your will is for each of us that we may not only reveal your glory here but give glory back to you who has given so much to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.